0: ahead and turn to 1st John as we dive into this text this morning. This is our third week in our gospel-shaped community series. The first week we looked at uh, the fact that we were made for community. That community was broken in the garden and Jesus Christ is in the process of restoring that community by bringing us into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then last week we looked at the fact that A gospel-shaped community is to be a joyful and a humble community, two words which sadly do not often characterize the church as a whole, but which we desire that God would allow our church to embody joyfulness and humility. And this morning, we have turned to the book of 1 John. Now, we have heard this our whole lives and in fact, I'm going to invite you to finish the phrase with me, okay? Honesty is the best policy. Let me ask you, do you truly believe, honestly, that honesty is the best policy for the life of the church? If you do, Do you understand the beauty and the power of the gospel in such a way that it has freed you, it has liberated you to be honest about your pornography addiction, or your greed, or your materialism, or your gossip, or your gluttony, or the idols that you tend to move towards In the difficulty of life. So let me ask you again, have you understood the power of the gospel and the character of God in such a way that you have also come to experience this truth? Honesty is the best policy for community. This morning we're going to look at three equations to consider for healthy community. First equation, dishonesty equals danger. Second, honesty equals hope and safety. And third, repentance equals rejoicing. So number one, first equation for us to consider if we want a healthy community is this, dishonesty equals danger. Now, look down at your copy of the scriptures and look at the beginning of verse 6, and the beginning of verse 8, and the beginning of verse 10. Each one of those verses begins with the statement, If we say... The dishonesty that shows up in our text takes the form of communication. It's a dishonesty about the real state of our hearts... It's easy to walk into a space and be somewhat dressed up and put a painted smile on and express something in this space that is not reality. Maybe it shows up in how we talk about ourselves, but maybe it also shows up in how we live and in the choices that we make. But we are all drawn, every single one of us, towards this type of dishonesty. But why? Why is dishonesty about the real state of our hearts so tempting? Well, for one, because it feels like self-preservation, right? But the Bible tells us in Proverbs that there's a way of living that seems right to man, but the destination of that way is death, not life. And Jesus told us that the one who dedicates his or her life to preserving that life is, in fact, going to lose it. And only those who give their lives for his sake and for the gospel's will save it. So, self-preservation does not lead to a life of human flourishing, even though it pretends to. Now, our text has a bunch of if then statements in it. I hope you noticed that as Devin read for us. Now, we use if-then statements all the time in everyday life, right? If the baby food goes on sale, that's the scenario, then it will sell out quickly. That's the reality. If it rains, scenario, I'm going to wish I had my umbrella. That's the reality. If the preacher goes long, highly unlikely scenario, then our stomachs will all growl in unison. And that's the reality. Now, there are a total of six if-then statements in our text, and they come in pairs. So there are three pairs. Let's look at the first part of each pair. They are premises, statements that portray dishonesty. So look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet keep on walking in darkness, then we are lying. Verse 8, second statement portraying dishonesty. If we say we do not bear the guilt of sin, then we are deceiving ourselves. Verse 10, third statement portraying dishonesty. If we say we have not sinned, then We make him a liar and the truth is not in us. So what is John doing? He's giving us three examples of the ways that we contend to be tempted towards dishonesty with ourselves, with God, and with others about the conditions of our hearts. And the first way we contend towards dishonesty is by saying that we have fellowship with Jesus while we walk in darkness. That's the beginning of verse 6. And John is saying if this is a settled state for an individual, then that individual ought to carefully self-reflect. If I am walking in darkness and saying that I have fellowship with Christ, then have I actually embraced the life-giving truth of the gospel? You see, the danger here is clear, saying that we have fellowship with Jesus by the grace of God through the gospel, whether that's by attending church faithfully, by putting on a good front, by being baptized, by singing worship songs, by attending a Christian college, by knowing the right answers, but then in secret walking in the way of darkness with no desire or determination to pursue righteousness by God's Spirit, If we are living in this paradox, then John says it means we're actually liars. And it was Jesus who said that liars take after their father, the devil, because he was a liar from the beginning, Genesis 3. See, John is pulling no punches here. The type of dishonesty that says, I know God! but with a lifestyle of persistent and consistent unfaithfulness in following Jesus, with no repentance, that's exceedingly dangerous. Public professions that don't match inner realities are easy to make, but dangerous. Second, we can pretend to be, or rather we can pretend not to be a sinner generally. That's the second statement that John makes here. If we say we have no sin, verse 8. Now perhaps you remember the story that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray. And as the Pharisee prays in the temple, he lifts up his eyes and he sees one particular individual, the tax collector who's absolutely despised in his society and culture for his dishonest lifestyle, as the Pharisee sees him, he begins to pray to God, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortionists, unrighteous people, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. But here John says, if we say we do not bear the guilt of sin ourselves, then we are deceiving ourselves. So maybe I should have introduced myself before this sermon by saying, Hi, my name is Isaiah, and I'm a recovering Pharisee. I've said this before, every morning I wake up a Pharisee. Every morning I wake up attempting to earn favor with God as if I have no guilt of sin. As if I can relate to him and flourish on my own by my own efforts. And my guess is that I'm not the only recovering Pharisee in the room. And our attempts to relate to God outside of Christ and by our own efforts and righteousness, those attempts are in reality saying, I do not bear the guilt of sin. I can relate to God on my own without Jesus. And we deceive ourselves. But there's a third way that we can tend towards dishonesty, and that's found in verse 10. We can live as though we are free from sin in the specifics. So the second point was, we can say we're not sinners generally. Like, as we observe others around us, we're in pretty good shape, or we try to relate to God as if we can do so on our own righteousness. But here, John drills down even more to say, But the one who says, I have not sinned, we make him a liar. Now, this is a tough one. Our culture encourages us to live life at such a pace that we don't have the time, the margin, the energy, or the space to slow down and evaluate. It was supposedly Socrates who said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And for many, an unexamined life is the way in which we say, intentionally or not, verbally or not, I have not sinned. Now this is why silence and solitude for centuries has been considered vital for a healthy walk with God but let's quickly acknowledge that we live in a moment of history where silence and solitude are hard to come by, aren't they? Writing for Desiring God, Marshall Siegel says this, "'Our phones always promise another update to see, another image to like, another website to visit, another game to play, a text to read, a stream to watch, a forecast to monitor, a podcast to listen to, a headline to scan, an article to skim, a score to check, a price to compare.'" That kind of access, that semblance of control can begin to make quiet moments, like the 30 seconds we spent together at the start of our service, make those quiet moments feel like wasted ones. Who could sit and be still while so much life rushes by? And I wonder... I, I wonder if we were to take a mental poll this morning, do our phones indicate our tendency to avoid silence and solitude at any cost? This may be one way in which we're saying by our actions, I have not sinned. I I don't need to take stock to evaluate. I, I I can't take time to ponder my inner life and my state before God right now. And there are certainly many, many other ways we can communicate this. But here John says, if we are living in such a way that we communicate this, what's the then of this if-then statement? Then we make him a liar. John Calvin said it well when he said this, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid, consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. So, are you growing, follower of Christ, in self awareness? When we enter into silence and solitude, we become more aware of the ways in which we specifically demonstrate our sin nature. The idols that we tend to worship, the lies we tend to believe about God, ourselves, and others. And so we can no longer live life with the mentality, I have not sinned. You see, dishonesty is incredibly dangerous. That's what John is communicating. And he's doing so so pointedly because the stakes are so high. I highly doubt anyone in this room would raise their hands this morning to say, yes, I want to make God a liar. And yet, that is precisely what happens when we live life this way. So John is putting us on the operating table. He's performing heart surgery in order to bring us into the glories of the gospel. So for each of these three if-then statements, there is a contrasting statement that immediately follows each one. We've skipped three is what I'm saying. We've gone from one to three to five, but there's a second, a fourth, and a sixth if-then statement we need to look at. So the second equation to consider for healthy community is this. Honesty equals hope and safety. Honesty equals hope and safety. So where is the proof in our text that tells us this? We'll look at verse 6. We've already read the first part. We're going to tie it together with the contrasting statement. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet keep on walking in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, do you see the honesty in this verse? It shows up where we walk in the light as he is in the light. You see, the Christian life is counterintuitive. Sometimes we are dishonest about the real states of our heart before God and others because we fear rejection. If God really knew what I was like, he wouldn't hang around. And if these people really knew what I was like, if these people who so obviously love Jesus knew what I struggle with this week, they would reject me too. And so we go into self-protection mode. Now, I want to acknowledge something at the start of this particular point. For some of you, this is part of your story. You were vulnerable with someone, perhaps in a religious context, a church community, and you found yourself shunned, isolated, and alone. For you, honesty does not equal safety. For you, honesty equals danger. And friends, if that is your story, you did not experience gospel culture in action. That is not the story that the gospel writes. Anti gospel behavior in the extreme beats up and castigates humble and repentant sinners. But here, God is inviting us into another way a gospel shaped community life. And God says, That when we walk in the light before him and others, then we will experience true fellowship with one another. And the life experience that lives that way means we experience the forgiveness of Jesus Christ who gave his life to cleanse us from that sin. Now, in full transparency this morning, for the first several years of being a pastor... It felt like if I was honest that I was a sinner too, I was on a dangerous ground. It felt like if I acknowledged that I have feet of clay, that I'm a broken person, then I was in danger. And friends, let me assure you that was not a life of joy, it was not a life of freedom. But when the gospel begins to break down walls and defensive mechanisms, God enters and brings freedom. And God began to put me in situations where it was impossible to hide my brokenness. I did not have the mental capacity or the emotional energy or the ability to put up the walls and defenses. And that is when I began to truly experience fellowship community with godly brothers men who were themselves broken and who preached the gospel to me very specifically in ways that i needed to hear the same gospel that says you are more broken and sinful than you ever dared imagine and you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope Walking in the light of honesty brings freedom, it brings hope, it brings healing, it brings safety because of the gospel. Where the gospel enters, so does liberation and freedom. But then look at verses 8 and 9. John continues, if we say we do not bear the guilt of sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us, but... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, forgiving our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. So where's the honesty in this verse? It shows up as we confess our sins. And how do we know that such honesty, confessing our sins to one another, to God, brings us to a place of hope and safety? Where's the proof? Well, what does the text say? It says first that God is faithful and righteous. And the result of that fact, the fact that he is faithful to his word, that he's faithful to his character, that he's righteous in his character, means one and only one thing in this text. It means he forgives. It means he cleanses. Honesty equals safety. Now, perhaps because of your experience of Christians, you've gotten the idea that God is in heaven and that he would like nothing more at any given moment than to send 8 billion people on the planet to an eternal, fiery death in hell forever. But friends, it is nothing other than God's righteousness that offers you and I this morning peace and pardon, and joy, and life, and security, and hope. Now, without question, God's righteousness means his wrath against the treason of our sin must be appeased. Without question. But that's the gospel. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem us who were under the law. Jesus gave his life for our sin. So God's love acted in concord with his righteousness, sending Jesus Christ to the cross so that he could pay the penalty for your sin and my sin so that we might enjoy the life that he secures. And that life brings us into freedom and honesty and joy as we lay lay our sin down at Jesus' feet in light of God's character and Jesus' finished work. But maybe you're sitting here saying, Isaiah, that sounds too good to be true. You don't know what I've done. There is no way he could forgive me. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you say, My my sin deserves the most awful punishment. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous, forgiving our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. But you say, My guilt is too much, my hands are too filthy, my crimes against Him are too horrific. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive and to cleanse. Honesty equals safety. But is it true? Does it follow that continued honesty about our sin? brings us to a place of safety and hope? Or is that honesty best reserved for that initial entrance into the gospel? God, I'm a sinner. I confess, I repent, I trust Christ. But now it's probably best that we keep that sin quiet. Well, look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, We make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, I am so thankful for those five English words. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father jesus christ the righteous one and he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for our sins but also for the whole world you see god's will for god's children is that we not sin and one day god will see to it that his will is brought to completion when we see jesus we will be saved to sin no more And that will be glorious, won't it? But until that day, our lives are lives of wrestling, struggling with the inner man, the principle of sin that is still alive within us. And in the meantime, what now? When you go home this afternoon and speak harshly to your wife and kids or when you treat, treat rather cheat, huh, cheat your employer by wasting time on the clock, or when you avoid necessary conflict by retreating to your idol of comfort or convenience, or when you fall yet again into that temptation, yeah, that one, the, the, the one you know that I'm talking about, that one over, that you fall over and over again. Isn't it best at that point to keep quiet? After all, God has already forgiven us so much already, wouldn't it be better to not anger him? To just kind of fly under the radar, not to bother him once again with, God, it's me again, about that same thing again, yes, I've sinned again. Well, according to this text, the answer is no, that is not better. That is not the path of flourishing. Because this text says we have an advocate. Think of a courtroom setting. One who stands for us on our behalf, representing us before the Father. One whom the Father loves with an eternal love. And that one is Jesus Christ. And as we enter the throne room of heaven once again in prayer, confessing our sins to our Father, grieved once again in the ways we've spurned His love and His mercy and His grace and His goodness and His kindness, then it's the faithfulness and righteousness of God that compels Him not to send us into an eternity without Him, but rather compels Him to receive us once again as a Father. Not wrath, but mercy. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect flea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever intercedes for me. My name is written, graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, No tongue can bid me fence, depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free because God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great, unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my savior and my God. Because this is true, friends, because honesty equals safety, then repentance equals rejoicing. In our corporate life together, in our community life as a church, the gospel invites us to live into these equations. Danger equals dishonesty. Or rather, dishonesty equals danger. Honesty equals hope and safety, and repentance equals rejoicing because Jesus is faithful and righteous. Two of my brothers-in-law recently moved to Arizona, and through their experiences of moving, I've learned that scorpions are active at night. I'm really thankful we don't have scorpions around here. They like the dark. So to keep the yard safe free from scorpions for the family, one brother-in-law in particular goes out at night with a black light. He goes out with a black light because under that black light, scorpions glow in the dark. How cool is that? God's glow sticks. And they have no way to hide under that black light. So the black light uncovers the danger, and the scorpions are then, well, sent to a better place. (laughs) Sin is a lot like a scorpion. It thrives, attacks, grows in the dark, hidden out of sight. And the means of grace for the Christian, which include the word of God and prayer and the gathering of believers and the community of Jesus, the church, is God's black light to shine on the scorpion of sin. Sin that grows in the dark glows in community. It can't be avoided. And that is God's grace. Uncovering that sin so that it can be dealt with. He's giving us the chance to respond in repentance and faith. So some implications for our community life together. What, what does 1 John chapter 1 into chapter 2 have to do with Sojourn Community Church? Well, first, let's continually treasure the gospel of Jesus. And endeavor to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper together. See, if we just mess about the shoreline of the gospel like wading ankle deep, then we are missing out on the beauty and freedom that honesty with God and others brings. And therefore, we're missing out on true community. So let's humbly and honestly and joyfully admit that as we follow Jesus, none of us have arrived. We are all just playing on the shore. But let's beckon to one another to go further up and further in, in the words of C.S. Lewis, into our understanding of the gospel. Let's not be content with a gospel that simply is received at one point in life from which we move on into other more glorious doctrines. That reality doesn't exist. Let's move deeper and deeper into the gospel together. Second, we have been freed to honesty as we gather in our life groups together. The danger feels like being known for who we are, as we are. That's where the danger seems like it's resting, but in reality, pretending to be what we are not is where the danger lies. The genuine danger is to live in darkness, not to walk in the light. We all know each other is broken. Don't we? Like, we all know that. So we don't have to pretend Jesus calls us, invites us to embrace the honesty that both admits our brokenness in specific ways, but the honesty that's also able to receive the input of others into our blind spots. Because I can't see my own face. I might have a big glob of toothpaste still in my beard from this morning, and I have no idea. I need you to point that out to me. The same goes for our spiritual lives. We all have blind spots. So let's remember the wisdom of James. So confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Third implication, if repentance equals rejoicing, then let's celebrate repentance. Let's celebrate repentance as an evidence of God's grace, not as a mark of shame. Not not as a giant scarlet letter A or R in this case. But let's receive it as a way of life. Let's view repentance and rugged, reckless, radical honesty as deeper movement into the joyful, flourishing Christian life. Repentance is not purgatory. It's not penance. But it's also not perfunctory or flippant. It is a deeply joyful act and it's an evidence of grace as the faithful and righteous God grows our trust in his gospel, freeing us to admit our brokenness and to receive more and more of his grace. Dishonesty equals danger. Honesty equals hope. Repentance equals rejoicing because God equals faithful and righteous. Let's pray together. Father, by your Spirit and solely because of your grace, would you draw each one of us deeper and deeper into an honest and repentant community that believes the gospel so desperately that we cannot but help confess our failures, our weakness, our sin, our folly so that we might enjoy true community with one another and fellowship with you both now and for all time. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.